Please open your copies of God's Word to the Book of Psalms and to the 14th Psalm. Psalm 14. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Psalm 14, reading from verse 1. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. O oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Amen. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. The expression of an atheist, atheism itself essentially means no God, uh, no Godism. And it is a religion in and of itself, although it states to be a non-religion. It is a religion, it's, it was the religion of the Enlightenment, it uh, was the religion of the French Revolution, it is the religion of Marxism and of evolutionists. You could say, therefore, in general, it is a fairly modern phenomenon, if we just go back 300 or 400 years. And we could certainly say it is very, a very public and modern phenomenon that we see in education and in the media. And it has, that is, atheism has become the bedrock of modern political ideology, whether extreme or uh, in dead center certainly become the foundation of modern medical ethics and it is a poison it is a poison that seeps through to almost every area of society and what does a poison meant to do it is meant to kill and it does its murderous work and it does its literal murderous work in many aspects that we see in abortion and in euthanasia and in the mutilation of children etc but what you might not realize is that mo in most ancient societies, even in the classical Athens of the 4th century BC, uh, the Golden Age, even in a place as enlightened and full of philosophy and uh, a limited but full democracy as that, it was, atheism was held to be a crime, a moral crime. And those guilty of it could receive the death penalty. There is a very famous example, but we won't go into those details now. 
Although, as understood from this psalm, this psalm written 3,000 years ago, it's clearly not a modern problem exclusively. So here we have in Israel, we have the psalmist of Israel singing about atheists, and we can presume, in Israel. There were atheists in the church then, and there are atheists in the church now. And why do I mean by that? Well, I would say that not only is all false religion in general atheism, but all false Christianity is actually atheism. We say, well, they believe in a God, but ultimately they deny God his supreme place to rule and to receive worship as he has directed it. Even those that call themselves agnostics, and maybe in the world there would be a lot more that would call themselves an agnostic than an outright atheist. That, 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 that idea, I don't know, which is what agnostic means in Greek. I would say that the agnostic is actually an atheist because there is a denial of God. The idea, I don't know, is really a denial of the God that they do not seek. If we remember from what we read, were there any that did understand and any that did seek God, we see in verse 2. But there will be a day coming when idolaters, when, when atheists and agnostics and false believers will all discover what this psalm teaches us, that ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is not bliss. That's the title of our study this evening, ignorance is not bliss. You know the expression, ignorance is bliss? Well, no, actually not. Ignorance is not bliss. We see, firstly, as we uh, get into this psalm, the foolish atheist, the foolish atheist in verse 1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And then we have that description of the atheist. They are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good. So here we have the, the wickedness and the corruptedness of those that say there is no God, there is no ruler, there is no good God. Anything they will say about God will be there to, to mock God. But what we see then, that word corrupt, they're corrupt. Atheism is a moral corruption. It's not true. What do we have in that, in that foolishness and that corruption? We have a, a self-deceit, thinking that you can discern and ascertain that there is no God. And the reason why you ascertain that there is no God is because they do not want there to be a God. Because there is a denial of sin here and a, and a, and a desire, or I should say a second denial of the accountability for sin. For they have done abominable works. So they, they sin, and they continue to sin. There's no control over their sin. And they say that there is no God. They may not speak it out and loud and proud, but it begins in the heart. The fool hath said in his heart, in his most innermost portion of who he is, there is no God. It is his driving force. He is against God. He's corrupt, he's, he's unrighteous, because there is no one that does good. There is none that doeth good. Verse 1 finishes with that very clear statement. 
So including the atheist, everyone else on earth does not do good because all are sinful and all are tainted with sin. As Isaiah the prophet reminds us, well-known verse, chapter 64 and verse 6, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, etc. So we see the foolish atheist. He comes out and says these things, but he actually just reveals the corruptedness of his own heart, of his own mouth, and of his own life. Because there he is with his fist balled up against heaven, against goodness, against righteousness, against truth. And there he is, the little sinner, in his lies and in his corruption. So yes, uh, the atheist is a fool. But secondly, we see the reaction from God himself, the discerning God, the God that discerns, that sees, that judges. And he comes back with an answer. Verse 2 says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. So the fool comes out with a blanket statement to cover his sin, but God searches. God inquires. God seeks. The atheist is not seeking the truth. But God is seeking the truth that he may make correct judgment. And although the atheist then does not have God in his sights, what do we read here? That God has the atheist in his sights. And maybe in his crosshairs. Firstly, we see that no one understands and no one seeks God. Because to have the knowledge of God, you need to have possession of the Scriptures And not only to have possession of them, but to read them. So you need to have the Scriptures to read them, and you do need the enlightening work of the Holy Ghost, that your eyes would be opened. I've known of atheists who've read the Bible only to find fault and to mock and to find uh, and to misunderstand what it teaches so that they can twist it. Why? So that they can say in their foolish heart, there is no God. So we do need the enlightening work of the Holy Ghost to have that knowledge of God, to have that understanding. And to seek after God, you also need those two things. You need the light of the Christian Scripture to know which God, how, and you need the work of God again to draw you to Christ. So no one understands and no one seeks God, and that is... uh, That is a damning declaration about all the children of men, as it says here. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men, and they did not have understanding. They did not seek God. And just in case anyone thinks, well, I'm naturally a spiritual person. No doubt you've heard that from people. Say, I'm naturally a spiritual person. But the Lord says, no, not even you. Not even you. We can look again in verse 3. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And so in spite of all the self-righteous and the self-exalting and self-important words and works of a fallen man, God sees through all the smoke and mirrors. 
So it's very difficult for us to ascertain a person's heart, let alone understand our own heart, which is why we must judge people uh, or discern people by the fruit of their works and words. But the Lord, he can see directly into the heart. He understands the human heart. He understands the reasons, the effects, the causes, all of these things. And where we have the smoke and mirrors of the fool saying there is no God, makes no, no difference because the God who speaks with precision and with truth, who is the righteous judge of all the earth, he says there is absolutely no one that is righteous that doeth good. He's emphasizing from verse 1. There is none that doeth good. And then verse 3 again. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And to understand the depths of the corruption of the flesh, you might understand it if you have an understanding of history, you have an understanding in your relationship to people with problems and people who are genuinely wicked. Um, what's that name? The, uh, Dr. Peterson has an understanding of that as a psychologist. He, he studied something of the Nazis. He studied... Uh, many other aspects, and he is convinced of the corruption of humanity. So he understands that. But then to understand what the solution to that is, he does not yet understand. But the Lord makes it very clear that there is a deep corruption in the, in the, in the flesh of man, and man's nature is a sinful nature. And all the sins that we see in the world, and not just the ones that are there everywhere, the, 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 the lie and, 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 and the, the, the lustful glance and, and the, the, the corruption in, in, in politics and all these things that are, just seem to be there all the time, but also those extreme crimes that we'll hear of, of, of things that happen to children, that happen to women in a park, and, 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 and may we say larger things like the, 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 the invasion of Ukraine, but also the coup that took place with American help uh, 10 years earlier and all this other, other things. We think, but this cost so many lives. This is corrupt. This is terrible. Yes, because of the sinful nature of man, which we all have. If God did not restrain us, what wickedness would go forth. If God did not restrain our consciences by the Word of God. But now we see that the Word of God has been removed from society and from schools. It's not allowed to have an influence. And we see how much corruption now comes out within a generation. That those who would have been understood to be immoral and perverts, to be people you would not leave alone with your children, are now to read books alone with children. That's the blindness of self-righteousness that refuses to accept the corruptedness of our human nature. No one seeks after God. There is no one that doeth good. No, not one. What do we understand with this? There is none that looks to God. There is none that trusts in God. There's none that believes in his promises and his warnings. There are none that follow his son for salvation. There are none that believe unless, unless God draw. 
Romans 14 and 23, in the last part of that verse, says, For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And there is no faith in the world. Yeah, there are many faiths. You know. But there is no faith in the world unless it is gifted by God the Holy Ghost, that faith that is to be in Christ, gifted to us personally. And of course, what we just read there, that those, that there are none that do with good, that describes every believer before they receive that gift of faith. We too, corrupt, ignorant, and godless, and yet even after conversion, the flesh is, is still. That's why the Lord would have us be masters over our flesh, to subdue it, to crucify it, to, to kill it. So we've had the foolish atheist and his foolish claims. Then we've had the discerning God and his clear and true judgments. Thirdly, we have the ignorant sinner. The ignorant sinner. And we see there from verse 4 onwards. In the beginning of verse 4, we see that the ignorant sinner is willfully ignorant. Ignorant just, I know we use it as a term, but ignorant just means I don't know. Like we had the word atheist just means no God. And, and the word agnostic, uh, again, meaning I don't know. But agnostic is Greek and ignorant is Latin. They're willfully ignorant. Again, that comes back to the corrupt nature of fallen man that we've looked at in the prior verses. Is willfully ignorant. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge is the question of this searching and discerning God. Verse 4. Yes, they do. They do have knowledge. They have the light of nature to help them understand the basics at least. That there is a God, that there is a powerful God, that there is an orderly God, a God that has determined rules of nature who has set up this physics and, and chemistry and everything and life itself. Romans 1 verses 18 to 22, we should know those verses very clearly, that this is the, the, the judgment of God upon man who has enough light in nature without the Scriptures, the book of nature, we say. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And you see how these two uh, portions of Scripture are linked. Interestingly, the word where he says they became fools, in the Greek is literally they became morons. Which means dull-witted. They're not sharp. They're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, we might say. And what's very interesting, of course, as far as the world is concerned, many of these atheists are academics. Uh, they are intellectuals, and they lord it over the working class. They lord it over those who haven't had as high an academic education as they, and yet God calls them 
morons. Sort of quite satisfying that in a way. But remember, before we were converted, we also were spiritual morons. Dull-witted. So these are willfully ignorant. They have the light of nature, and the Lord says, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? And the answer is, yes, they do. But they do not want the knowledge. And so you must suppress the conscience then that gives some knowledge also, besides creation around you, but also, as it, as, as it says, in fact, as it, as it points to, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Not just the conscience, but including the conscience. And the conscience complains against them, but then they have to ignore the conscience. And you can continue in your sin until the conscience has been seared. It's no longer soft, it's no longer yielding, it's no longer responsive, but it has become seared. And when we think of seared, we might think of a, of a piece of meat, uh, but the problem is a piece of meat may be soft, um, but it's not alive. But if you imagine somebody sears a living muscle, and then we've got problems. Then we've got real problems. It's not just a cow's muscle, but your own muscle. And it becomes seared, it becomes hard. And then the things that people do to drown out the sound of their conscience. Activity in life, keeping themselves busy, uh, drinking, taking drugs, and all these other things that people will do to excess to still the sound of their conscience because they are willfully ignorant. But we see also not only are they willfully ignorant, but verse 4 continues on to say, but they are clearly anti-Christian. So by their fruit you shall know them. So they say one thing with their mouth. We don't believe in a God. You know, we think this, and this, that, and the other. But in reality, they're very much against God and against God's people and against true religion. How easily they suffer many other religions. But they will not suffer the Lord's people. And we can go back into the ancient past. We can consider the hatred of Pharaoh and his people. We can consider the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans in 70 AD and their attack upon the Holy Land and especially uh, Jerusalem, the Roman Catholic Church against Jew and Protestant, the Soviets, that is the communists and the Nazi regimes, all against them. So God's people, the Old and the New Testament, have, have always been hated and always been hunted. And even in the times of great rest from oppression, it tends to ha that, those times of rest tend to follow on from times of great bloodshed. And even within the visible church, and that's very much in the context of Psalm 14, even within the visible church, the invisible church can be the target of those who are within the visible church. Look at the Anglican Church in the UK where you have the rulers, the bishops and the archbishops have declared that they love uh, sodomy more than they love Christ. And so there are true believers, even, even ministers of the gospel and people in the pews who are greatly now under oppression because of their decisions. We're not going to go into the details now. And then he moves on into verse 6. Continues with this theme. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor. Because the Lord is his refuge. 
Again, we have that expression, the poor, the poor of this world. Not to say there are no Christians who don't have a decent bank account, but poor as in <coughs> the poor in spirit, the humble. So even the scriptures, when they have these words, even the scriptures that are used by believers to rebuke the world and to give warnings, when that is given by a Christian, what do we see in this world today and has been in the past in many times? We think even in, in Victorian times, uh, when people were more religious, that you know, 90% went to church and, and the like, but if you were really evangelical, you really believed in the rebirth and you really believed in, in walking the way of life as a, uh, according to the scriptures, you know, you were, a, you were a Bible basher. You were an extremist, a fanatic. So it's ever been the case. It just varies. We could go back to the time of the Puritans. It was even more clear. And so when we have this counsel of the poor, when they would give counsel, when they would speak the truth, nowadays it would just be called hate speech, of course. But it is not. It is love speech. It's speaking the truth in love. They're not understanding that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So they're willfully ignorant, but clearly anti-Christian. And yet verse 5 says, but they're still fearful. They don't have any rest. So all of these fictions, these ideological, philosophical fictions that they tell themselves to try to calm down their conscience, to try to live a life as, oh, when I die, I'll rot. There's nothing ahead of the grave. There is no judgment. I think, especially of Dawkins, when I think of that sort of expression. But it says in verse 5 that there were, they in, there were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. And of course, in good times, in easy times in life, the atheists can, can, can raise their fists toward heaven against God. But in times of trouble and testing, even when they're close to death, they can know something of the fear for God. But I don't mean the fear of God, I don't mean that blessed grace. I mean an angst for God. Well, they will have fear because they know something somewhere in their conscience of judgment and destruction, and death just seems to open. It's more like a, like a, like a, dark, like a dark pit, and, and, and it's the unknown, the fear of the unknown. What's going to happen? They have no assurance. They have no peace, and somewhere they know they're in trouble. Of course, I'm painting this with broad brushstrokes. There can always be exceptions. People who have so hardened themselves against the gospel that the Lord has literally just blinded them completely and they go off shuffling off this mortal coil with absolutely no fear at all. And that becomes a snare to other people who know about it. Nothing to fear, atheists. We can just go. And yet so many famous atheists or agnostics in the last 200 and 300 years, are on their deathbed, screaming, sweating, knowing that Napoleon, uh, for example, and, and, and others of the Age of Enlightenment and of the French Revolution and the like, who, who 
must confess on their deathbed that they had no peace, that they have spoken against God all their lives, and they wish they had peace with God now, that they were going to meet him. They suddenly stopped being atheists and didn't stop being agnostics and knew something of what was about to face them. There they were in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. They are not the generation of the righteous. We finish with God's people encouraged. There's the foolish atheist, the discerning God, the ignorant sinner, and point four, God's people encouraged. And what do we see there then? Well, I'd like to bring in, because the Lord is... Uh, to bring in God is in the generation of the righteous but we really we want to focus on verse 7 oh that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad So in many aspects we have a conflict between the lies of the godless and the truth of God. And we see in some ways that people of God are in between. Uh, this, this, this battle between, well it is the, the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. God being above it and in it, in the people. But now we come to the end of this psalm and we see great encouragement. Firstly, we see that Jesus is to come for his people because we see in verse 14, uh, verse 5, sorry, verse 5 and B, the second part, God is in the generation of the righteous. He's in them. See, Christ is not just standing aloof. He is the God that sits on the throne of judgment and looks down upon upon man and sees their wickedness but he's in his people they're not alone they're not left alone to fight these battles God is in the generation of the righteous he's in the church in general he's in his his people which would say it's the same as the church and he's in every single believer so Jesus is to come for his people but he's also to come in this way. We see secondly in verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. And there we have a thousand years before Christ does come out of Zion, that the Father sends his only begotten Son. They have the hope and they have the, the, the faith in that hope and in that promise, and that saves them. But again, we have this idea, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. And then we think of the heavenly Zion. And that Christ is coming the first time for his people. So he is coming, he came, as we look 2,000 years later on, that the salvation of Israel did come out of Zion. And you say, well, doesn't that maybe even point to the Lord's second coming? Well, it can from our perspective. But I think the second part of the verse says that when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people that would point more to the second coming yes they are linked together oh that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people 
to ultimately fulfilled in Christ's returning the second time. To do what? To deliver us from our earthly captivity. To deliver all of his church. And say, well, what if I'm, what if I'm a thousand years in glory in my soul uh, with the Lord? Yeah, but there's still something that belongs to the Lord here on earth. And that is your body, your bodily remains. He will come for his people, body and soul. He will bring back the captivity of his people. And thirdly, Jesus will rejoice with his people. So he's come for his people to dwell in them. He will come to deliver them ultimately as well. And Jesus will rejoice with his people. It says at the last portion of verse 7, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. All of those fools that were made wise unto salvation. And in spite of the oppression and the hatred of the atheist or the agnostic or the false believer will one day have their faith and their trust and their hope and their belief rewarded personally by the one true and living God. He who is denied and hated by the atheist. And what does he say? He says here, there is a persistent and there is an everlasting rejoicing of being glad, of having fellowship with all of God's people, having fellowship with God himself. And this is not a passing emotion. We know about passing emotions. We can be elated one day. We might be depressed the next. We can have seasons of, of, of feeling okay, we can carry on through life. You know, we're not bad. And we have that expression, how are you? Yeah, not bad. Which I trans- try to translate into Dutch every t- when I first moved to Holland. And, and it just did not work at all. Because that was normal for me to say, how are you doing? Yeah, not bad. Niet slecht. People say, sorry? Because that seemed to be a moral judgment upon myself or something. It, well, it wasn't an expression anyway. But we have that idea, yeah, not bad. So it's not good. But it's not bad. So somewhere in the middle, probably below the middle, but, you know, we're moving on. We're surviving. There's another expression. And then sometimes we have elation. Sometimes we have good news. Sometimes we have things that thrill our hearts. And oftentimes we have things that, that weigh down upon us. And yet, what he is speaking of here, of David, is speaking as he writes this psalm. What the Holy Ghost is saying through David, you know, there'll be one day when it won't just be, I'm just surviving. I'm just muddling along. I'm getting through. It's not too bad. That'll be gone. Not a passing emotion, but a persistent high. And, and, and we, we won't need to use any lies to, to convince ourselves of something. We don't need to use any, any alcohol, any drugs. Although there will be drinking of wine in heaven, it seems, but that's another story. But it won't lead to sin. It will not be a sinful matter, a sinful medium. Now, God declares that without ceasing, we will be rejoicing, happy. And we, we, know, we know something about rejoicing. But to rejoice all the time, to be constantly joyful, to be constantly glad, happy, we know little about 
And the reason why is because there are so many things that get in the way of that here and now. And the Lord is yet to remove them. And he declares that in Revelation 21. The Lord himself says, and he speaks about himself in the third person, he says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So enemies, mean words, things that hurt you, on the things that cause sorrow. There won't be any death, there won't be any illness that leads to death. No more backache, no more uh, uh, whatever the pain and the difficulty is. No more weeping, no more crying out, for the former things have passed away. Hence the Lord can say this, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Notice the doubling up of the expression. It's a common thing in Hebrew poetry. But I think it's here to emphasize two things to us. And it says, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. It's to emphasize that all of God's people will be there. All of them will experience that eternal joy and bliss. Because God has made the difference. God has made the difference. God has granted them faith. God has drawn them to himself. And God will bring them there. And secondly, that this eternal rejoicing is absolutely certain. So all of God's people will be there, and this eternal rejoicing is absolutely certain. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. This in stark contrast to how we began the psalm, with the haters and the deniers of God and of his glory, was speaking out against him. But for them, if God does not change them, does not grant them faith, that they do not deserve, that they have no right to, it is always the gracious kindness of God to do that. But upon them, if he does not, if he allows them to do what they want, if he leaves them in their sin, then his wrath will abide upon them forever. And there will be no rejoicing, and there will be no gladness. And so we are to be steadfast, believer. Let us be steadfast. The academics, the woke mobs, the politicians, the media despise you and me and hate you and me. But God has a glorious and a happy and eternal future reserved for you. Because they will all be removed. All the things that get in the way of happiness will be removed. And you will have, and I will have, direct fellowship with him who is pure joy and pure truth and pure light and pure love. He took away your spiritual foolishness. He made you wise unto salvation and he will bring you to himself in due course. 1 Peter 1 verses 5 to 6 who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So ignorance of salvation is not bliss, but a true knowledge of Christ is and shall yet be. May God bless his word to us this evening. Amen.